space glider, marionette, acroyeur, bug, microtron, biotron. They came from inner space. Six champions sworn to free their beloved microverse from the tyrannical rule of the evil Baron Karza. Stan Lee presents The Micronauts. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 109, The Micronauts, issue number one, covered at January 1979. Hello, I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and I would like to welcome you to another episode of Marvel's Cosmic Comics, presented by the comic book Time Machine. And this is a podcast where we travel back in time and look and see what is on the spinner rack month by month. And we're using Star Wars as our anchor point from 1977 through the end of Marvel's run of Star Wars in 1986. And so that is why we are looking at Micronauts here. Now, Micronauts, like Star Wars, like the other comics we cover on Marvel's Cosmic Comics, is a licensed book not featuring, I should say, not originally featuring Marvel characters. Marvel characters may pop up here and there. They popped up in Human Fly, the stuntman, that was a real-life stuntman that Marvel licensed. They are going to pop up in the Micronauts. And now they didn't pop up in Star Wars, and I'm, I'm glad for that. But if we are going to see any characters from the Marvel 616 universe, Spider-Man, X-Men, those kind of things, it is only because they are appearing in a book that is not an original Marvel concept, but a concept that Marvel licensed. So that brings us to our topic for this episode, the Micronauts. Okay, so all I have to say right now is finally, finally, we are here. We have the Micronauts. I mean, <clears throat> I've been waiting for this. I have been waiting a very long time for this. Now, the on-sale date for this issue was September 19th, 1978, which is different because most of the other books that we're looking at for this section, this um, cover date of January 1979, hit shelves in October. This one hit shelves in September, a month earlier, which meant that it got an extra month on the shelf because it hit shelves in September, but the cover date of January meant it was taken off the shelves or was supposed to be taken off the shelves by people who were um, selling them in January. So it got an extra month to have this first issue of the comic on the stands. And... You know, I mean, this is one of those books like Star Wars that uh, Marvel was was taking a risk on, and this is actually a bigger risk than Star Wars was. Um, I would say it's a bigger risk than the Human Fly in some ways. Um, actually, no, I, <laughs> that's that's kind of silly uh, because the Micronauts was a really really popular toy. Um, well, we'll get it. We'll get into the background there. Uh, but first, let's get into my background of the Micronauts, my Micronauts story. Um, 
when I was a kid, I only owned one Micronauts comic. And which one doesn't matter. We will get to it when we get to it. But I got it as a party favor from a friend's birthday party when I was living in Ontario. And I was super disappointed in it, honestly. I remember the other kids getting comics with characters I recognized, like Spider-Man. And uh, I don't know if there's any Superman. I, I remember seeing a Spider-Man comic and an X-Men comic and thinking, I wish I had that instead of the one that I got, the the Micronauts comic that I got that featured this weird character on the front. And uh, the character it featured was Bug. And it just I, – I, I was really disappointed. I think there was even a kid who got a Star Wars comic. I, I, I really think that the uh, – Whoever the, the whoever the parent was, uh, just went to the stop shop, the stoppy shoppy, as it is uh, remembered by me because it was spelled S T O P P E S H O P P E, and they stopped at the stop shop and probably just grabbed one copy of um, a different comic uh, and just grabbed a bunch of them and, and put them in the the little bags with the candy and the little thing you blow in and it extends you know what i'm talking about like a weird tongue blower thing you know what i mean if you don't know what i mean don't worry about it it's not important what's important is i had this comic i ended up reading it and liking it uh but i was disappointed because you know at first i was disappointed i this was a comic from a toy i had that just fell apart like it literally fell apart i had the time traveler micronaut toy and it was an orange one, and it was meant to be taken apart, and it had all these interchangeable parts, which would be great if you had other toys to interchange those parts with, but I only had the one guy, and uh, it fell apart. And while I thought the toy line was cool, because the back, the, the card um, that had the the, the, the the toy came on, the back of the card had a whole bunch of pictures of a whole bunch of cool play sets and vehicles and and other cooler looking characters and i had this just kind of bland looking robot guy i didn't know anything about him and the toy didn't last very long because one by one slowly the pieces just fell off and got lost and eventually <laughs> the last piece fell away and that toy just faded out of my my toy collection. I don't know I don't know whatever happened with it. I if it got thrown away or 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 what. It just eventually was not a part of my toys. And so that was my first introduction to the, the Micronauts. Like I said, I did read the comic. I read it quite a bit because I read all of my comics over and over and over again. But um I ended up kind of liking the comic and the weird character on the front. Oh. We'll get into that comic when we get to it. Like I said, the second Micronox comic that I got was the issue with Man-Thing as a guest star. I got this as an adult and I got it when I was filling, uh, you know, collect, doing my weird collecting, which is collecting things about characters that I like at the time. And so at this point in time, I was filling in all of the holes of my collection of Man-Thing comics. So I had finished the actual runs of Man-Thing by Steve Gerber and Man-Thing, the, the second run, which was with uh, ended up featuring Chris Claremont. And then I started getting the, you know, just the appearances of him. And so I got that comic book as, as part of that collection. After that, though, and then this happened about 
10 years ago, we were visiting my sister-in-law who lived in Ontario. And there were two comic shops in the town that she lived in. And one of them, it was a nice shop. It had more expensive, uh, high-end back issues, but then also had tons and tons of cover price and lower than cover price uh, graphic novels. It was a nice little shop. The other one was a smaller shop with a smaller selection, also a little dingier um, as far as the, the way that shelving worked and stuff. And, and there on the floor under a table was um, some bargain bins. I don't remember the price on the bin. I am not sure if it was a quarter bin. I can't remember that. I don't think it was a quarter bin. I, I think it was a 50 cent bin. I know it wasn't a dollar. I, I know that because um, – I was very pleased I was getting all these comics for less than a dollar each. So that's what makes me think it was a 50 cent bin. I I don't remember. But when I got down, kneeled on the floor and start flipping through the the box. And and those of you who um, have done the whole back issue search, you know, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I found some Micronauts comics and I keep flipping through the box and realize this isn't just some Micronauts comics. This is all Micronauts comics, <laughs> all of them from issue one of the Micronauts that I have in my hand right now to issue 20 of Micronauts, the new adventures, the, the second series that um, came out right away after they, they did the final issue of, of the first series uh, to the X-Men crossover miniseries. <laughs> they were all there. and <laughs> Apparently someone had brought their collection and, and sold it to this guy and, um, and then this guy just put it in there and, uh, you know, I had to do some digging. It wasn't all just right there from, you know, one through whatever in numerical order. Um, they were out of order and they were mixed in with other comics, but they were all there. And so um, I got them all except for the ones that I already had. <laughs> and I, I have to say it was one of, if not the best comic comic book shop find of my life and for some reason it just always seemed right and fitting that i should find that collection while i was visiting canada um yeah but anyway best comic find comic book shop find ever and not because of the exchange rate of canadian currency which i think was pretty good back then if my memory serves but even if my memory doesn't serve well it it's not because of that it's because honestly it's a fantastic run of comics this and ROM are two of the reasons that I would consider, no, not just two other reasons, I, I think they are the main reasons I would consider Bill Mantlow as one of the greats of comic book writing. I mean, he took these two toy lines, well, one toy line and one just toy with ROM. I mean, there was no toy line with ROM. It was just one toy. It was that character. Uh, But he took these two toy lines and he turned them into legitimate sci-fi properties. And the series are not perfect by a long shot. Um, There are some issues in storytelling. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the issues in storytelling here with this issue. But I've always said, uh, always, that these comics are better than they had any right to be. These comic series are better than they had any right to be. And it is a shame, it is a downright shame that the rights to these licensed books mean that they are not going to be reprinted in um, like an omnibus edition of ROM or an omnibus edition of, of the Micronauts. It can't happen and without a bunch of, you know, figuring out 
rights and details. And I don't think it's a big enough or an important enough series for them to go ahead and try and navigate all of that. Now, we got the essential Godzilla, and that's a, a great thing, and we have the omnibus of John Carter, and that's a, a great thing, but um, with ROM or Micronauts, you're going to have to go and find the back issues. Now, Micronauts did have some reprinted uh, editions. I believe they came out around the time that Micronauts The New Adventures uh, was hitting stands, and, and they, they reprinted at least like 1 through 12 or something like that, and they reprinted one or no, they reprinted two or three issues in each one of those reprint editions. Um, and so those are also, you know, those would help you in your, your search if you wanted to try and, and seek out uh, these back issues just to read the stories. But I, I just feel like it is, it is a shame. It is a real shame that these can't be enjoyed by more people in easier ways than, than they are right now, because they're, as far as a series goes, the entire package, the whole, the whole of each one of those is it's worth reading. It's, it's good stuff. It's good sci-fi comic book storytelling. It includes Marvel, um, guest stars. Um, like I already mentioned, there was a crossover with X-Men, uh, Rom and Micronauts both are part of secret wars too. But, um, it, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. And I'm so glad, so excited to, to start with this because I mean, honestly, um, <laughs> one of the things that prompted me to even do this podcast in the first place, not just the Marvel's cosmic comics, but to actually get into and doing the comic book time machine was the comic book time machine was going to be my venue to be able to do Marvel's cosmic comics. Uh, and so when I found out that both Brom and Micronauts ended in 1986, which is the year Star Wars ended, kind of an end of an era of licensed books that they had. Now, they had licensed books after that, but they were different in tone and they were different in style. And they never did the same thing as this. Now, Transformers and G.I. Joe went past and beyond 1986, but um, the Micronauts, Rom, Star Wars – all those things ending in 1986 just it was kind of an era of of these licensed books. So that's what prompted me to do this and caused me to research some more. And eventually, that's what led to this Marvel's Cosmic Comics, and and led to this moment, and led to this comic. So yeah, let's take a look then at the backstory of the Micronauts as a book. Now I mentioned this is part of a toy line, and. Um, Mego Corporation is the American uh, distributor and and seller or reseller, I guess maybe, of this franchise, uh, the the Micronauts. Now, before they did the Micronauts, they had done a ton of different things, and they're especially famous for their '70s franchise toys like um, World's Greatest Superheroes with with their Marvel and DC heroes and Planet of the Apes and Star Trek and all sorts of franchises. I think they had Happy Days and, and different things like that. But they had all sorts of franchises that they were doing these toys with. But they wanted to have their own toy. And that's when in 1976, they started, uh, they, they got the, the rights to do the Micro Man 
toys from Japan. Now, um, this information I got here comes from a website that's defunct and doesn't exist anymore and is actually only available if you go to the Wayback Machine on archive.org, but it was called Tom's Microman Zone. And I, I really, I mean, I just pulled this from that. And of all the places I looked, this is one of the better ones kind of explaining what Microman was. Um, by the end of 1975, the website says, Microman had firmly established itself in the Japanese toy market and was well on its way to becoming a household word. The huge success of Microman has been attributed to at least three major factors. First, it had a sci-fi theme, which was great for stimulating kids' imaginations. This would later become a requirement of all toy lines with the release of Star Wars in 1977. But in 1974, Microman was ahead of his time and the kids really got into it. A second factor has got to be Microman's unique approach to the idea of scale. When dealing with toy figures, it is obviously necessary to scale them down from real life, as was done with G.I. Joe and others. But unfortunately, this causes kids to be excluded from the character's world, at least in a physical sense. But Takara, which is the toy company from Japan that, that created Microman, came up with a clever way around this. In Microman's universe, he was not a normal-sized person. He was actually 10 centimeters tall. So this meant that the figures the kids were playing with were the real Microman. Adults thought he was just a toy, but the children knew that Microman was alive. It was a brilliant marketing strategy, one which really brought the Microman universe down to earth for children. Later, Takara added an environmental theme when they introduced the enemy, Akrier, whose mind had become twisted due to pollution in the environment. Kids were encouraged to stand up and fight alongside Microman to save the earth from these problems. This further emphasized the world Microman inhabited was really our world. Finally, there was at least one other important factor, and that was interchangeability. With Microman, any single toy was actually several different toys. And if you combine two or more, the combinations became staggering because they all used the standard 5mm parts, were never limited to a single function, but could be placed anywhere on that toy or on any other Microman vehicle or even the figures. The fact that the figures were just as interchangeable as the vehicles was a novel concept, which had been carried over from Henshin Cyborg, but Microman brought it to new heights. The world of Microman was an ever-expanding one. So that's just kind of an overview of, of Microman as it existed in Japan. Another thing, another article I saw somewhere uh, mentioned something about, you know, these small toys actually fit into the smaller uh, living environments uh, of apartments that the, uh, many Japanese families were finding themselves in at that time with expanding cities and stuff like that. And it fit in their house better or fit in their apartment better than in a, in a, a larger toy would in a larger house. And also the price was able to come down lower and, and it also was cheaper to produce because it was a smaller amount of plastic that was needed. So anyway, that's Microman uh, from Japan. Well, Mego licensed these toys, the Microman toys, and actually a couple other toys from Takara and, and put them out under the Micronauts name in 1976. And it sold really well for them from 1976 to 1980. And actually around the time when Star Wars came out, it ended up being a full third of their entire business was uh, income from the Micronauts toys that they were doing. The, if you think about it, the timing was just about perfect because the size of these figures was the same scale or the same size as the Star Wars action figures. And the sci-fi theme also you know, fit well. And uh, the only problem was there was no real backstory to the Micronauts like there was for Microman, <laughs> at least not yet, uh, which was a problem for, for me in some ways when I was, you know, I had that time traveler figure and i didn't know what it was i didn't know what it did and i don't know why they called it a time traveler or uh all i knew was he's kind of bland and, and dopey looking and he had a lot of cooler toys on the back of the car that i didn't have so there's that uh now other toys that i had that didn't have backstories didn't matter because they were just like regular people like i had i love the fisher price adventure people well 
they didn't need a backstory. They just, you know, they had a canoe. So that meant they were canoeing and they would go on camping adventures. And I had the stunt van with the motorcycle and the, um, the kayak and the parachute and they were stunt guys and I didn't need the backstory. Now I also provided my own backstory to tons of these toys and I would switch things around with my GI Joes and my star Wars guys. And my star Wars guys weren't always, you know, star Wars characters. I sometimes made up new characters. My GI Joes, the same thing. And so my Fisher price kind of fitted all my Fisher price action figures. And I also had some Tonka, um, Tonka people who were the, the right, uh, scale, but they were much thinner than, than any of my other ones. And just, they always look kind of weird next to my, my other guys. But anyway, they all work nicely. Like I said, <laughs> with, uh, um, my, my, uh, time traveler guy, I mean, he just kind of disappeared over time. So anyway, um, the, backstory wasn't there but this is where you get bill mantlow in who is the writer of human fly and lots of other stuff but as far as i'm concerned the important thing right now here is human fly and on christmas of 1977 he discovered these toys because uh some of them were given to his son adam and according to an an article in back issue number 76, I have right here, quoting the article, uh, returning to Christmas 1977, Bill's son Adam had opened his Christmas presents with the typical enthusiasm a child has when tearing open wrapping paper like the Incredible Hulk on a rampage. Four of the boys' gifts caught Bill's eye. The Micronox figures, Space Glider, Time Traveler, Acreer, and Galactic Warrior began giving him ideas and concepts for a new series. One week later, Mantla walked into the new editor-in-chief Jim Shooter's office to convince him to get the rights from Mego to do a book. Shooter's first act as head honcho at Marvel was to ask for new ideas from creators. Mantla then gave Shooter his Micronauts proposal and began working. So that was... <laughs> what a neat thing, you know? What a really neat way for <laughs> this to begin. I thought Mego came to Marvel. Um... I mean, that was just what I assumed until I was reading this article, but it just seemed like that was the way it went. Uh, Marvel might go and, and seek it out, but at this point, I figured with the success of Star Wars, that Mego came to Marvel and said, hey, you guys did the Star Wars thing. Would you do Micronauts? And then uh, they assigned Bill Mantlo to it because, hey, he's quick and he's good. But that was not the case. Rather, it was the opposite. And I think it's a really neat origin story there. Um, So then Bill Mantlo had to come up with the background and the storyline for the toys. And something similar would later happen with Transformers and G.I. Joe. And I wonder how much of a, um, you know, almost a test run the Micronauts were for that. Uh, As far as they just, they have the toys, they have the box of toys, and they have to figure out who are these things and what do they do? What do they care about? And, and why are they, why are they cool? <laughs> why do they have uh, playability? Uh, again, uh, so the back issue from tomorrow is, is one um, resource that I have, but then I also have uh, another uh, resource where that gets into Micronauts and that is um, Michael Golden, the modern masters volume 12. And it has uh, some, an interview with, with Michael Golden and, uh, he talks about working at DC before he went to Marvel, and um, he basically was working on 
three books at, at DC and was very happy working on those three books at DC. But then you had what they call the DC implosion and his books, which were Mr. Miracle. And um, he was doing some Batman stuff and some man bat stuff, but uh, his, his stuff got, got canceled. And, and so then Marvel came to him right around that time and said, uh, they they wanted to work for Mike on Micronauts and they were offering him ten dollars more per page, and so um, the whole idea of him you know working on this though was because uh, nobody else was interested in in doing it because it was a licensed book is what he he thinks, and so they they had you know basically the new guy to the company do it. Uh, now B- Michael Golden was not the original artist on this. Bob Hall is the artist who worked with uh, Bill Mantlo to come up with the original designs of the characters. But then Michael Golden came along and he, he made it all come together and, and made it all work. Bob Hall helped with concept creation, but Michael Golden uh, was truly one of the, the, one of the storytellers along with Bill Mantlo. Uh, in fact, he helped come up with some of the, the story concepts that they were working on and, and things like that. So, uh, he he said that it was interesting working on that licensed book, but um, but there wasn't an approval process. He, he says, quoting from that article or from the interview rather in Modern Masters Volume Twelve, uh, there was no approval process that I was aware of that might need a big qualifier. You might ask Alan Al, Mil- Al Milgram, the editor, about that. I'm not sure. As far as I know, there was no approval process, and I would probably stick by the statement, seeing as how that book was late from the word go. And then he goes on to explain, um, it was my first exposure to a situation that occurred to me repeatedly at Marvel, where I was told they wouldn't schedule the book until they had four issues completed in the drawer. Then, like a couple weeks later, they'd call me up and tell me I was four months late. And that's what happened on the Micronauts, is that I said I'd do the book, and we got everything together. I was wrapping up my stuff in D.C., or at D.C., then moved across four states. And as soon as I got a phone in the new state, I called up. And they said, oh, by the way, you're four months behind schedule. And from that point on, on, it was just me cranking out work. And so they did it Marvel style. And we're going to talk later about um, why that might be a little bit of a problem. But Marvel style is when, if if you're not familiar with it, um, a writer or a writing team or the writer and the artist come with an outline of what the story will be. And then the artist takes that outline and just draws from that. And the page layout, the the panel layout, the, the number of panels on the page, that's all determined by the, the artist. And then the artist does the whole thing. And then that goes to the writer and the writer then fills in the dialogue after um, all of the, the artwork is done. This is part of why we get a lot of uh, the flowery prose from Stan Lee's comics is because the outline that would get drawn didn't necessarily, because of being done so quickly, um, tell the story in the best way possible. Meaning, Stan Lee would go in and and add in some some text to allow um, the readers to know what's happening from from panel to panel. Now, in this, then you had um, two original characters that were created for the book, uh, Marionette and and Bug. And those characters were not part of the toy line, but they were created and, and put into the book and became, you know, they're in this first issue, they're very important characters. Uh, speaking of, uh, let's go ahead and let's meet the Micronauts because 
uh, the page that I would assume would go to the letters column uh, actually went to these descriptions of the characters. And here's how they describe them. Commander Arcturus Ran, who was one of the toy characters. Uh, one of the first space-gliding micronauts, adventurer, explorers, dispatched in suspended animation 1,000 years ago to the farthest reaches of the microverse. Ran has returned to a homeworld vastly changed from that which he knew. Yet he has spent 10 centuries telepathically probing the unknown and never much cared for the predictable anyway. And then there's Marionette. Princess Mary of Homeworld's royal family. She saw her parents and her brother killed or captured in a coup d'etat and is in, as fierce in her desire to revenge as she is in her hatred for the next character, Baron Karza. Once Homeworld's chief, chief scientist and overseer of the body banks, Karza has offered the, micro, the microverse immortality for a price, total and complete subservience to his wishes. And he gets it. Acrier, Prince of the Acriers. His name is unpronounceable. His fearsome face is never seen. He fights with Spartan ferocity to regain his throne stolen from him by Prince Shaitan, his turncoat brother whose treachery forced the proud race of Acriers to submit to Baron Karza and to become shock troops in his war to dominate the microverse, which uh, explains why you have... Acrier as a good guy because in the Micro Man series, I mean, Acrier was a bad guy. Anyway, uh, Bug, master thief of the insectivorid race, feisty and fearless, he's a galactic warrior at home with any manner of weapon. Biotron, one of the original 6000 series of thinking robots, he has become obsolescent during his 1000 year sojourn with Camp Commander Ran, and he doesn't like the idea. Microtron, a personal roboid, jester tutor, servant, and guardian to the Princess Mari. The Shadow Priests. Having first appeared on Homeworld 1,000 years ago, they had assured Karza that their religion would aid his science in capturing the hearts and minds of the microverse. Unsure of himself then, Karza had agreed, thinking the, the priests could be dealt with at the proper moment. Yet, 1,000 years later, that moment still hasn't come, and Karza himself, contemptuous of a force he considers inferior to his own science, cannot understand why and then there's the time traveler about whom we're not saying anything <laughs> and then uh, on this page it says we want to hear from you right micro males care of marvel comics 675 or 575 eh, doesn't matter that address is not valid anymore so those are the characters uh the main characters and there are tons and tons of toys but those are the the ones that they they did this so um yeah, so issue one, the initial idea to even do this book came from Bill Mantlo in Christmas of 1977. This issue went from Christmas 1977 idea to September 1978 on the shelf. So let's talk about this issue. The first thing is the cover. It says they came from inner space. It says the Micronauts. It says fantastic first issue. And then there is a picture, a picture that makes me say <laughs> Darth Vader is hard to draw <laughs> because Baron Karza, I, I just got to say it. He looks like Darth Vader. Now, which came first, the chicken or the egg? In this case, it's Baron Karza. I mean, it was a toy that they were designed before Star Wars and they were on the shelves before Star Wars, and they're drawing from the toy. 
that existed before Star Wars. But if you look at this comic cover, it looks like a Darth Vader ripoff. It really, really does. It's unfortunate, but true. Then you also have uh, Commander Ran, who is wearing a uh, tight blue bodysuit with uh, gold trim, and he's got brown hair, and and he's he's shooting a, a laser pistol. Then you have Akriir, who is right behind him, and he's got a flaming sword with surging with energy. And then you have Marionette right behind on the other side, and Bug behind her, and they both have their weapons. They aren't firing them, but they have them. <laughs> this comic, you look at the cover. If you like Star Wars, you're going to like this comic. That's what this cover screams to you. It doesn't say it. It doesn't say anything about the word star and the word wars are not even on the page. It says space. That's as close as it gets to that. But it is not. It is shameless in the way that it's saying, hey, if you like Star Wars, you'll like this. Uh, And that's a good thing. I mean, it's dynamic and it says this is what's in this book. Sci-fi adventure. The pencil of the cover, by the way, is Dave Cockrum, and the inker is Al Al Milgram. So the writer, as I said before, is Bill Mantlo. The penciler is Michael Golden. The inker is Joseph Rubenstein. The letter is Tom Orsachowski, and the colorist is Glennis Wayne. Let's talk about the story. Chapter one is called Homeworld. Prince Argon and Princess Mari along with a handful of loyal soldiers, are riding through the streets of Homeworld, escaping rebel soldiers who are under the control of Baron Karza, and they are planning to take over the planet. Uh, the prince and princess escape the dog soldiers and escape the acriers, who are um, armored warriors who have these cool uh, winged jetpacks that actually kind of remind me a little bit of uh, streamlined scale down version of vultures wings from Spider-Man homecoming. But anyway, they escape them barely. Um, most of the soldiers get killed by pulse rays. Pulse rays are weapons that kill, but do not destroy. And therefore the body is recyclable and can go to the body banks. Now the people of Homeworld have joined Karza because while he offers slavery, he also offers immortality along with that slavery and also not to follow him will mean certain death. So it's either don't follow, get put in the body banks, or do follow and get to live forever. It's great. They find a safe haven where Argon has summoned the Enigma Force. And this really upsets Mari. For some reason, it's a little hard to understand outside of, I mean, they don't really tell why, but the context clues that I get kind of suggest to me that she realizes that he knows that this is the end. And he wouldn't summon the uh, Enigma Force, the time traveler, if something terrible wasn't about to happen. But Mari realizes this all it's all too late. The rebels have found them. And while Argon fights valiantly, he is captured by Karza's or Karza's forces. And Karza orders him into the body banks. And that's the last we see of him in this issue. So let's take a look at this chapter. And I'm just going to briefly talk a little bit about some some ideas here but um 
you start with a lot of excitement. You're thrown into this weird situation in this world. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what the world is like. But like I said, there's context clues. It's a little confusing, but a lot of times the beginning of a story is confusing as you then start navigating the story and figuring out what's going on. Okay. It's easy then to figure out once you're at the end of this chapter that there's a rebellion and Mari and Argon are, you know, they're good guys and everyone has joined the bad guys on the planet. So that's not great. <laughs> uh, by the way, Mari looks kind of like a uh, orange palleted version of Dazzler. I, I, that's best I can put up. She has like the Dazzler makeup around her eyes. And yeah. So Mari, it seems like, is able to escape. But I, it's just there's a little bit of um, a little bit of fuzzy storytelling going on here. The other thing is the body banks. I'm not sure exactly what happens there. I mean, it's been years and years and years since I've read this. It's you know almost ten years. But um, it just reminds me of Soylent Green. And if you don't know uh, what Soylent Green is, then um, you can either watch the movie Soylent Green and find out, or you can look it up and get it spoiled for you. But it's one of the great reveals of cinema that unfortunately gets revealed to people without seeing the movie kind of like the end of planet of the apes, the original, but there's also the awesome Saturday night live sketch when uh, Charlton Heston was hosting Saturday night live and they go from soyant green to soyant red and beyond. <laughs> it's kind of fun. So then chapter two is titled homecoming. And in this chapter, the homecoming belongs to Captain Ran. After a thousand years, he's returning home from a mission meant to show that they were not alone in the universe. He is going out to make first contact. He sleeps most of the trip with his robot Biotron waking him at the appropriate time. And now he has woken him at this appropriate time, which is to land at home. And when he lands at home, he's greeted by an honor, an honor guard who open up fire on him when he exits the ship and knock him out. They don't kill him. But he wakes up to find himself in a cell with Acrier and Bug, an insectivore, an insectivorid. <laughs> but that's impossible in Rand's mind. And Bug immediately knows why Rand feels like it's impossible. It's because he discovered their worlds 700 years ago. And ships can't travel that fast because they only have a faster than light drive. So they shouldn't have been able to beat him back to his home world. But they did because while he was traveling, they discovered warp drive and that made he made he had to make that really long trip home. But they were actually able to bounce back and forth between worlds pretty quickly and war erupted pretty quickly after contact and had been waging ever since. And Baron Karza is not just taking over home world, but he has subjugated all who stood against him and taken over many worlds. In fact, the Acreers are under his control because he has subjugated them. Now, Rand's amazed because Baron Karza was his professor a thousand years ago. Um, but he doesn't know what to think because it's kind of the Buck Rogers syndrome and it's kind of a neat sci-fi element. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, they're in prison, but it's in a place called the pleasure pits and outside of their cell, the robot microtron that we've seen before has this female looking, um, creature thing robot that dances as if it has a mind of its own, like a marionette. Uh, but to ran, she looks too beautiful not to be real. And to the readers, there is no mystery 
about who she is or what she is. It's obviously <laughs> Princess Mary, but or Princess Mari. And I don't they kind of play it up like a mystery a little bit here, but she's acting like she is a robot and people are talking about her as if she is a robot. And this is another one of those kind of confusing things. Like how did she get from where she was to where she is now? But we'll talk about that again later. And so the sci-fi concept that really gets explored here is this idea of him traveling just slightly faster than light. And then you have these other worlds that, develop this new technology before he has a chance to return home and tell people he discovered people. I mean, it's, it's a cool idea. It's an idea that I've wanted to play with and um, just haven't gotten around to writing any stories with that because I didn't, I didn't have a real good hook with that. Uh, I did read an excellent story uh, about this kind of thing um, a while ago, but it had to do with uh, a love story where you had one character who have they, as they traveled, they were, um, aging more slowly, you know, Planet of the Apes does that kind of thing um, with their ship where when they, they're the original Planet of the Apes, the idea is that they've been out uh, exploring space and they're returning home and they know they're returning home uh, to a world that they don't, that they never knew. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's a cool concept and I like the way that they, they deal with it here. Rand is trying to deal with the fact that a thousand years have passed and things are far, far more Uh, different than he was expecting. So then we have chapter three, which is called escape Baron Karza and Prince Shaitan and a shadow priest oversee an arena that is about to see mortal combat between the prisoners and a death tank also present there. not just the prisoners, but uh, Marionette and her roboid um, micro microtron. It turns out that there is an underground resistance and that Marionette and Bug, and Aquarier, and other people are a part of, and they are going to rescue Ran. And the reason they're going to rescue Ran is because he is an X-factor to Karza's plans. And so they fight the death tank, and they win. But Karza doesn't it doesn't phase him at all. He doesn't feel any anxiety. He just lets it happen while Shaitan gets upset. So they escape, and they get out of the arena. They're attacked by Aquarier soldiers, and... They are joined by the time traveler from the Enigma Force earlier, who reveals to Rand that his Rand's parents were actually the first of the Resistance and have since then become deified by the people of Resistance. And so Marionette actually uses their name as an exclamation. You know, instead of saying "Great Caesar's Ghost," she says, "Oh, I can't remember the names of of the parents," but she uses the parents' name as this explanation: uh, Dallin and Sepsis. She says that two times. And when she does that, um, Rand is, who, what did you say? Those names. And that's when the time traveler appears and explains that they are actually his parents, the first of the resistance. So they board his ship and they're being chased by other ships, but they're able to escape by going to the fringes. And this is where his ship can go through this space wall that marks the edge of the microverse. But the pursuing ships cannot. They just crash into it and they're destroyed. And they have escaped now. But where are they escaping to? Well, next issue, Earth. So here we have, again, some more big ideas. The priest, just in one panel, throws out a whole ton of sci-fi ideas. And and not just sci-fi, but but fiction in general. And, and honestly, philosophy. Um, just throws out that the people have what they want. They have immortality, 
perfect health, a religion that answers any worrisome questions, and an endless program of entertainment. I mean, it's bread and circuses, you know, from the old Rome um, thing where give them what they want. As long as they're fed and entertained, they'll do whatever you want them to do. And you don't have to worry about losing power. And, of course, then that was the title of the Star Trek episode as well. And it's also brought up a lot in modern culture. There is a lot packed into this issue. And the question might be, is it too much? (laughs) And the answer actually might be yes. I mean, there is so much going on in this issue. And for the most part, it works as long as you gloss over a few transitional kind of things. Um, Bill Mantlo said in that article uh, from Back Issue Magazine, he says, quote, we got to work and produce the most convoluted first issue in the history of comics. Jim and Stan were appalled. What did you do? We can't understand this, they yelled. And if we can't understand it, how do you expect the kids to understand it? (laughs) It goes on. uh, um, Michael and I got extremely depressed and began to try and simplify the storyline without sacrificing any of the sci-fi elements inherent in the book. It's no easy task when you're dealing with immortality, body banks, submolecular solar systems, warp drives, and the like. But we persevered. And so... Yeah, for the most part, it works. But I think what makes it not work is actually the whole um, the Marvel method in this situation. Uh, the art itself is just about perfect. I mean, I love uh, I love Michael Golden's style. And when when there are sequences happening, action sequences sequences especially, there there's energy and there's vibrancy, and it's 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 really really well done. The problem is when it comes to like the storytelling, like Marionette, there is no explanation at all, like how she goes from being presumably captured. We don't know. I mean, they don't say anything about her being captured and they just mention Argon. But then we go from that to where she's doing this Marionette dance thing with the robot. And so I, th- I think it's the Marvel method that, that hurts this one the most and does make it a little bit confusing. But on the other hand, this is creating a whole new world. And it's so it's introducing the characters, introducing the world, introducing all the concepts of not just this world. It's not just uh, we're on planet Tatooine and here are the rules of Tatooine. It's not just that. It's not just, okay, we are on planet um the Vulcan and here are the rules of, of this planet and, and not just the rules of this planet, but the kinds of creatures and, and, uh, the, the primary, um, race that lives on this planet. It's, it's not just that it's a whole different universe. We are in the microverse. And so it, it doesn't explain it exactly, but it does, it does explain it a little But Um, all things considered what this book has to do, what this comic has to do. I think it does it. It does it well, and it is there's it's an action adventure story that really tries hard to do fresh and new and exciting uh, science science fiction ideas. So whew, that's the Micronauts issue one. I can't believe we made it. This is a milestone for me. Um, um, uh, it truly is a, a milestone for me that we've reached this issue in the uh, Marvel Cosmic Comics, and there'll be other milestones up ahead. There's one month, like I've mentioned before, that I'm very excited about because it features <laughs> it features just 
enormous sci-fi franchises all in one month published by one publisher. Um, that'll be a milestone, but this is a milestone here and we've got more coming. I mean, there's, there's not, this is not the only toy line that they were messing with. And ROM is not the only toy line that they're messing with. There's a couple others, uh, especially Shogun Warriors is coming soon, but yeah, Micronauts number one, there it is. So after this, it's going to be Godzilla. And you know what? Uh, remember last issue of Godzilla? Well, it looks like the Micronauts are not the only small heroes we're going to be dealing with this month. So with all that said, um, <laughs> this is the part where I say thank you for listening. This is the part where I say, hey, if you have any memories of the Micronauts, uh, send them my way. So feedback at comicbooktimemachine.com or comicbooktimemachine.com. Or just the website or fan Facebook page, facebook.com slash comic book time machine. Those are all places where you can leave feedback and yeah, but we are moving on to Godzilla. So until next time, like I said, thanks for listening. And no matter how big or how small you are and no matter where your journeys take you, even if it's a thousand years away, Godspeed. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, Battle Beneath 8th Avenue, Godzilla, issue number 18. Welcome to... And I'm the Irredeemable Shag. Dude, what are you doing? What? Give me those Star Wars as my show. Well, you're part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, so it's really our show. But if you show up on the promo, people will think you're the co-host. I'm not? No, the show will have rotating guests. You just took that idea from my Justice League International podcast. You took that idea from my Secret Origins podcast. And you took that idea from Dead Both and Spies. That was my podcast. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I sang the theme song with you. So? So, technically, I appear on every episode. I'm part of the foundation of this new Star Wars show. That's... That's true. So, you want to take this from the top, or what? (sighs) 
I'm Ryan Daly. Join me and a galaxy of guest stars on Give Me Those... <coughs> including the irredeemable Shag, whose voice you will technically hear on every episode, on Give Me Those Star Wars. The official Star Wars show of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes and Stitcher and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. 